Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Would you join me in prayer? God, of thy goodness, give us yourself, for you are sufficient for us. I may not ask for anything less than what befits my full worship of you. If I were to ask anything less, I should always be in want. For in you alone do I have everything. Amen. That is a a 600-year-old prayer from Julian of Norwich. And it sums up today's readings. We also heard the, the theme and the beautiful music. Go after anything less than God, and you will always be in want. For in God alone do we have all. The problem is, I certainly see it in my own heart, that the heart often goes after everything but God. It's prone to wonder. And I don't just mean irreligious people out there sleeping in on a Sunday morning. I mean us, your heart and my heart. The scriptures, the great Christian tradition, teach this tension. On the one hand, our hearts are, in John Calvin's words, idol factories, basically. And on the other hand, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. So what are we to do? Today's reading points us to this kind of primal spiritual truth, namely the need to learn how to loosen, how to loosen our grip on worldly goods, to cultivate, in the words of Ignatius, indifference, we'll get to what that means, towards good things that are not ultimate things, to detach ourselves from things that we make idols. So let's begin with a definition of terms. What is an idol? And then we're going to look at all three of today's readings in succession. I'm reading a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety by Pastor Steve Cuss. He's local, and uh, um, he's an Australian, and, and he has a great accent, so I love the audiobook as well. Uh, he has this great reflection on idolatry. He says, an idol is whatever we live for when we are not living for Jesus. And then he draws on Tim Keller's infamous reflections on idolatry. He goes on to point that an idol is usually a good thing, that we make an ultimate thing. So money, for example, good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, it's idolatrous. A person's opinion of you, good thing. It's nice to be liked, be in harmony with everyone, good. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, you end up being exhausted trying to serve that idol. In other words, he says, an idol is a functional savior. Why do we lie? and fail to love, and break our promises, and live selfishly? The general answer is, well, we're weak and sinful. But the specific answer is, there's something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy, to be okay. Something that is more important to our hearts than God. Something that is enslaving us through inordinate desires. An idol is anything other than Jesus that you must have or I must have to be okay. The writer of Ecclesiastes is identified as King Solomon, and he's in old age, and he's reflecting back on this life, having gone after many things that had supplanted his going after God, idols. He'd pursued and attained more wealth and more pleasure and more power than you or I could possibly dream of. And he looks back on it all, and he concludes this, I denied nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. 
Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And here we begin not just to see the nature of idols, what they are, but the problem with idols. The NIV translates meaningless. I've just read NIV. But most translations say something like vanity, or everything is futile. Everything is a chasing after a wind. The Hebrew here is hevel. And this word is kind of hard to define, but it's like a warm breath on a cold Colorado day. You breathe out, and it's vapor, and it's gone. A vapor, a mist. The point is that every earthly thing, even good things, success and work and in health and and pleasure and power, and finally all of life is like a, a firework or a bubble. It is no sooner born than it bursts and it's gone. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It doesn't endure. But the problem is bubbles are shiny and we like children love to chase after them. It's hard. It takes restraint not to. In my own life, in my own pastoral vocation, I'm beginning to suspect and see, and really in agreement with many of the great spiritual uh, thinkers throughout history, that identifying and addressing your idols, the idols of your heart, it is among the maybe the most important but often neglected spiritually fruitful disciplines in the Christian life. Cus goes on to offer some advice. How do we identify our idols? So if you're a note taker, Take, take these down and think about them this week. Here are some questions to help you identify what, what are the things that my heart thinks it needs. What makes you feel anxious? What makes you feel anxious and threatened? What do you repeatedly worry about? What do you think you need to feel settled? What do I sacrifice time and power to get? What do I daydream about? What is my nightmare scenario, my worst-case scenario thinking? Again, these questions are helpful because the common thread of an idol is, I need it to be okay. And when you find yourself not okay, you find yourself really anxious and deeply unsettled, it may be because you are not getting what you think you need to be okay. It could just be part of it. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's even physiological reasons and other things that work, so it's, but it's a helpful indicator. Why am I feeling so upset? So for me... Um, you know, I tried to think through some of my own. I came up with a laundry list. Uh, I need my kids to behave well in order to be okay. I need them to respond relatively quickly and respectfully to what I ask. Is that bad? No, it's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. If I become enslaved to that, then I become controlling and and quick to anger and impatient. Um, I need to be in harmony with everyone. I need to be liked. I need to feel secure. And if I'm not, I'm anxious. You know, uh, I looked up the most Googled (laughs) this past year. The most frequently Googled how to be questions were this. How to be eligible for a stimulus check. (laughs) How to be more attractive. How to be happy alone. Money, sex, happiness. We could probably add power most common idols, right? Things we think we really need in order to be okay. So what is it for you? I found that even in smaller moments, this is a little trivial, but I I think that often life is in the little things. There was one, there was one Topo Chico left in my refrigerator. (laughs) I knew that Jenny wanted it later. I knew for a fact, (laughs) but it just looked so cold and refreshing, just bubbling there. 
like a shining jewel in my refrigerator. And I just looked at it and I thought I'd been processing this all week, you know, like this lens of idolatry. And I'm like, I'm asking myself, is this pleasure more important than my wife's desire? Cliffhanger. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do it. I often do. Often it's arsenal for me. It's like, I know the dishes need to be done, but arsenal's on. It's hard. That's, that's one of my idols. Uh, in Luke 12, 13, someone in the crowd calls out to Jesus. This is just going to, this parable Jesus tells kind of confirms everything I just said about idols, and then we're going to look at Colossians and how we actually address them. But this man from the crowd calls out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed you judge and arbiter between you? And then he tells him this story. He says, well, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, all kinds of greed. Life does not exist or consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells this parable about a wealthy farmer who, after an abundant harvest, good thing, an abundant harvest, yes, decides to build ever bigger and bigger barns to amass his wealth in order to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And again, the end, the warning is, well, be careful, be careful to do have to have all this and not be rich towards God. So is being rich wrong in and of itself? No. No, I mean, it can be spiritually dangerous, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's a gift, a blessing, but be rich towards God. That's the call. So the scriptures relentlessly warn against greed for money, but why? Well, this man wants money, why? To take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He wants ease, and he wants pleasure, and he wants comfort. Well, it's one of the most common bubbles we tend to chase, money. Jesus goes on to say, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The reason that even really good things like a successful business or, or well-behaved kids or a T-bone steak and a glass of red wine or a vacation on the beach, they must never become ultimate things. It's because they're hevel. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then what? These things are evanescent. They're like, like sand that slips through the fingers. You just can't quite hold on to them enough, and you get some, and then you need more, and they become a little bit like Gollum's ring. They enslave us. They become a power that becomes all-consuming. We just need more. It enslaves our passions, and ultimately it imprisons us. So the rich man dies, and he's having a conversation with God, looking over his life, and what does he say? Look, Lord, look at these magnificent barns. Idols pose as a path to freedom, but real freedom isn't the ability to, in, in Solomon's words, deny yourself nothing your eyes desire. That's not freedom. That's enslavement, and that's hevel. A vapor. Real freedom is being free from enslaving idols. So for this man, it was a bigger barn, ease, comfort, pleasure, earthly things. What is it that you think you need to be okay? Here's a few more whispers from my idols this week. I found it just kind of cropping up in small ways. What I really need is a new windshield in my car. That, that crack right in the middle, especially when the sun's at a certain angle, it's really bothersome. Better yet, what I really need is a new Subaru Forester, and then I could be a real Coloradan, you know? What I really need is the freedom to go wherever I want, when I want, with my wife and kids, maybe a week at Disneyland, maybe a week in a tropical paradise. What I, what I really need is to be myself in the quiet with books for a week. What I really need is a landscape architect, you know, and a blank check to beautify my yard, to turn it into a lush garden. Then I'd be okay. 
if the essential problem with idols is that they are earthly and therefore passing. Again, again, anything I just said wrong in and of itself? No. You know, if the time comes, maybe I'll get some of those things. That'd be great. What a gift. But if they become ultimate things. So Colossians 3 shows us how to address this in the heart. Beginning in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Set your hearts and your minds on things above, on things that endure, namely on Christ, who is your life. Now coming back to Ignatius and this concept of indifference. So Ignatius of Loyola was, is now famous um, for the, as a spiritual guide, but as a young man in the military, he was prideful and he was violent, and he was a vain womanizer. That was until his leg was shattered by a cannonball. And his idols were also shattered in that wreckage. And during his recovery, he met Christ. As a spiritual master, he spoke of the danger then, looking back on his inordinate attachments to things like, like his pride and, and a lust for violence and, and sexual pleasure. And he looked back on it and he said, you know what, I need to cultivate indifference towards some of the good things in life that I've made ultimate things, which is indifference. It's the capacity to enjoy the gifts of life, but to let them go as necessary. To let them go is to not need them. It's to wear them lightly. Boston College professor and Ignatian guide Marina McCoy, she cautions against misunderstanding this word indifference because it sounds a little bit like not caring, but no. Indifference does not mean not caring. One can be indifferent and yet deeply passionate, she says. In fact, since God is love and God's redemptive work takes place through love, we cannot be indifferent unless we love like God and love deeply. So she gives a few examples. She says, each time I became a new mother, I fell in love with my baby in a way that led me to feel great reverence for the giftedness of this child's existence. Every time I contemplated the beauty of the world, it filled me with wonder and praise. I felt delight and friendship but indifference means that when the baby grows up and the friend moves away or a day at the ocean is cloudy, she says, I can still find ways to love God and love people because these gifts have not become ultimate to my heart. Cultivating indifference towards our idols then is a practice that takes time. It's a process of learning to desire what God desires. It is to live within the freedom of our desires, not saying, no, desire is a bad thing. That's more of a, a, an Eastern way of seeing it. Not that desire is a bad thing, but freedom within our desires. So first, the invitation is to identify your idols. Think through what are the things my heart is inordinately attached to that I think I need to be okay. And then set your heart and your mind on Christ. What does that look like practically? Well, I want to say this, that many of us, we, we hear what we need to do, and then we make a list, and we need five steps, and we're going to do it and accomplish it. Like, we're going to will ourselves to indifference. It does not work that way. You can't, because even this is a gift from God. So what actually it is, is it's bringing our idols to the Lord, and then an actual, genuine, relational exchange, asking Him for help, asking Him for the grace to start transforming the desires of your heart. Larry Warner puts it this way, do not rush to remove things from your life. That's like sin management, you know. Do not rush to remove things from your life. Rather, rush to God. Put on Christ in your heart and your mind. Rush to Him, asking God to increase your desire for Him. 
So most commonly, setting your heart and your mind on things above means meditating on his great love for you. Because his loving care for you means that if you, you know, you have, you have a little, but you know what? You have enough. Meditating on his great love for you means though you may be sick, you have eternal life. Though you may feel friendless and alone, you have him. Though you struggle with sin, you have a savior. Though others slander or disapprove or think little of you, you have Christ crucified. It means that in all of our talents and in all of our weaknesses, in all of our wrong ideas, in our, in our foot-in-the-mouth moments, in our failures, our embarrassing mishaps, on and on, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are loved. You are safe. In him you will endure. The things of the world, they're hevel, they're vapor. Set your hearts and your mind on Christ so you can enjoy the good things of life, the gifts he gives, but you can wear them lightly and let them go. I attended a funeral this week right here, and Pastor Joe was officiating, and I watched and heard as he welcomed up the spouse of the woman who had died. And it was an elderly couple, and the man was very elderly, and he was, his health was clearly failing. He had a hard time even getting up here. And he looked back on a life spent with his beloved spouse. And he had three minutes to talk about it. He didn't talk of bigger barns. He didn't talk of their best vacations or their successful careers or how well-behaved their children were, whatever. He wept as he simply recalled his wife's hand on his arm every single night before bed and her gentle words, I love you, which allowed him to sleep in peace. Now, it was touching, but it also, by extension, what I want to say to those of us married or not is that this is, this is the invitation to put on Christ, is to daily experience his reassuring touch to experience this calming word, I love you. Put me on. My love, my love is better than the other things of this world that you think you need, that you've been going after. Rest in my love. Be at peace in my love. That's the invitation. And then in the end, in Colossians 3, Paul even says it. He says, all these things, compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, do that, yes, but above all, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Because idols are vapor. Love will endure. By setting your heart and your mind on Christ again and again and again, you can allow the power of his love to slowly decrease the power of the idols in your life. God, of thy goodness, give us yourself, for you are sufficient for us. May I not ask for anything less than what befits my full worship of you. If I were to ask anything less, I should always be in want, for in you alone do I have all. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.